Good evening, everyone. Unfortunately, because of the, COVID, the new COVID variant, which has meant that new travel restrictions and isolation uh, have been introduced, I've been unable to give this lecture from um, Gresham College, which is why the lecture is being given in this way. Hopefully, when it comes to my next lecture, I will be back in Gresham College given this lecture in front of a live audience. I want to start this lecture by telling a couple of stories. The first in time is a story of Mohammed Matan. Mr. Matan was a Somali man living in Cardiff who was in an interracial marriage with a white woman, something that was unusual and stigmatized at the time. In 1952, he was tried, convicted and hanged for a murder he did not commit. Important exculpatory evidence showing that the witness identification of Mr. Matan was unreliable was not disclosed to the defense or put before the jury. At his trial, his own defense counsel described him as, quote, this half child of nature, a semi-civilized savage, end of quote. Following the refusal of leave to appeal, he was hanged at Cardiff Prison on the 8th of September, 1952. Eventually, following a reference by the Criminal Cases Review Commission, he was finally acquitted by the Court of Appeal in 1988. The second story is the story of David Olawale. Mr. Olawale was a Nigerian immigrant living in Leeds in the 1960s, who spent eight years in an asylum following a fight with police officers. After his release, he became street homeless. He was subjected to a systematic and horrifying campaign of beatings, harassment, and humiliation by two white police officers. Eventually, under circumstances which remain unclear, he, was, he drowned in the River Eyre. In a 1971 trial, the two police officers were convicted of multiple counts of assault, but acquitted of manslaughter. Startlingly, however, the trial judge, Mr. Justice Hinchcliffe, described Mr. Oluwale as a dirty, filthy, violent vagrant, a menace to society, and a frightening apparition to come across at night. That is what a High Court judge in 1971 thought it appropriate to describe a homeless black man who was being brutalized by the police. Most people know that the English legal system has had a long race problem. Yet, often we attribute this to policing only, allowing the wider justice system, judges in particular, to get off scot-free. However, judicial racism has and still does play a critical role in perpetuating race inequity. Judges are some of the most powerful actors in our society and decisions they take can often be life-changing for individuals, communities, and society as a whole. At some point in your life, a judge may decide whether you go to prison, a judge may decide whether you lose your home, a judge may decide whether you're entitled to benefits, a judge may decide whether you're entitled to custody of your children. You see, a good judge can transform lives for the better. A bad judge can ruin lives irreparably. In this lecture, I'm going to tackle judicial racism head on. This lecture will be in three parts. First, I'm going to look at the history of judicial racism. But this lecture is, a, is an, as much about history as it is about law. Second, I'm going to look at judicial racism today. And third, I'm going to close the lecture with some thoughts about what we as a society can do about it. A couple of acknowledgements. First to Bob, Colin Bob Semple, who sent me his excellent book, Race, Jail versus Bell, which has been extremely useful in putting together this lecture. And second to Mika Ann Neal, who has recently completed her PhD on 18th century 
domestic service and who provided helpful insights into the scholarship on black, British black people in the early modern period. One final caveat. Although much of what I will be saying is applicable to Britain as a whole, I will be focusing on the legal system of England and Wales rather than that of Scotland and the North of Ireland. So firstly, putting English judicial racism in a historical context. This will necessarily be a broad brush overview. The history of race in the English legal system could be an entire lecture series and many books have been written about it. But we do need to understand, albeit briefly, the relevant history before we can understand the present issues. The presence of black people in Britain is not a recent phenomenon. As long ago as 1596, Elizabeth I's Privy Council issued a proclamation authorizing a Lubeck merchant called Caspar von Seddon to take blackamoors from England and sell them as slaves in Spain and Portugal to defray his costs incurred by repatriating English prisoners. And as most people know, during the, eighth, during the 17th and 18th centuries, Britain profited greatly from the transatlantic slave trade, abducting huge numbers of people from Africa, enslaving them in the American and Caribbean colonies. Many of the wealthiest and most powerful families in Britain made their fortunes through slavery. By the 18th century, there were numerous black people in Britain itself, some of whom had been purchased overseas as slaves and brought here to work for wealthy families. It's sometimes said that every brick in Bristol was cemented with the blood of a slave. It's widely known that the 1772 case of Somerset against Stuart, the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Mansfield, granted a petition for habeas corpus brought by an enslaved man held aboard a ship bound for Jamaica, ruling that there was no basis for his detention. Many people have credited Lord Mansfield's judgment with catalyzing the end of slavery in England. However, some 13 years later, in the case of Crown against the inhabitants of Thames Ditton, Lord Mansfield stressed that his judgment in the case of James Somerset, was to go no further than to establish that a master had no power to take the slave by force out of the kingdom. As historian Caroline Steedman has underlined, these words by Lord Mansfield made his famous Somerset judgment seem a very small thing indeed. It is his qualification that will echo through the law report down to the 1830s. And as we know, it wasn't in fact until the Slave Trade Act of 1807 that the slave trade was abolished in England and not until 1833 with the Slavery Abolition Act that slavery itself was formally abolished. Let's turn to the criminal law, specifically the courts and judges. At the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century, criminal law sanctions handed down by local magistrates, unpaid officials, and Crown Court judges were particularly brutal, often called the bloody code. A huge number of offences, including damaging Westminster Bridge and impersonating a Chelsea pensioner, were punishable by death. Public hangings, transportation to the colonies, and whipping were all everyday practices. Historian Norma Myers, in a study of Old Bailey Court Records, has documented the stories of black people who came before the criminal court in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, including many who were who was transported to Australia. Myers's work underscored the extreme harshness of the criminal law of time for black defendants, Irish defendants, but also the English white working class. She notes that the most common offence for which people were transported to Australia was the theft of a handkerchief. And Britain exported 
this system of disproportionate punishment and brutality to its colonies. As historian Diane Patton noted after a study of the records of slave trials in the 18th century Jamaica, quote, Jamaican slave courts and the punishments they inflicted enacted rituals that both dramatize and sustain the power relations of the colonial slave society, rather than representing the supposed common discipline for all to a single rule of law, as did the contemporary English spectacle of trial and punishment, Jamaican judicial practice emphasized the difference between enslaved and free and valorized the slaveholders' private penal power, end quote. In the West Indies, the magistrates were drawn from the plantation-owning aristocracy, and this did not change when slavery was finally abolished in 1834. As Colin Bob Semple writes, quote, throughout the British plantation system, it was customary for planters to become magistrates. They were the people responsible for the constant whipping and other forms of torture of enslaved Africans, in addition to performing their roles as justices. After emancipation, the planters continued to act as magistrates and dispense justice, sometimes very harshly." End of quote. As Bob Semple highlights, the entrenched racism of the British establishment did not go anywhere post-emancipation. In fact, at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, eugenics was very much in vogue in Britain and America. The central tenet of eugenics was that some humans were genetically superior while others were genetically inferior. Crime, poverty, and mental illness were all ascribable to inferior genes. Eugenicists advocated for forced sterilization of people whom they regarded as feeble-minded and defective. This tended to go along with pseudoscientific racism Many eugenicists divided human beings into Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid races, who were all believed to have different characteristics, with the so-called Negroid race being at the bottom of the pile. And as such, colonialization was regarded as being justified because of the inherent superiority of the white race and the inherent inferiority of Negroid race. These ideas were very politically influential before and after the First World War on both sides of the Atlantic. Eugenics had a great deal of influence on the legal system. In the United States, numerous states passed laws that provided for the compulsory sterilization of defectives, laws that ultimately inspired Hitler's fascist regime. Here in Britain, Eugenic ideas inspired the enactment of the Mental Deficiency Act, 1913, which provided for the institutionalization of those it labeled defectives, including in the explicit language of the act, idiots, imbeciles, and the feeble-minded. Although the British Act, unlike its American counterparts, did not provide for sterilization, this act shows how commonplace and widely accepted eugenic ideas were in the early and mid 20th century. And although eugenics generally fell out of cultural favor in the mid 19th century, many scholars have argued that, on, that the ongoing legacy of eugenic thinking about crime and punishment, the inherently criminal, continues today. Let's move on to the post-war decades. As I talked about in my last Gresham lecture, the Immigration Act 1971, celebrated or flawed. Between 1940 and the 1960s, large numbers of black and Asian people came to Britain from the Commonwealth. This group of people are often known as the Windrush generation, after the ship HMT Empire Windrush, which docked in Britain on the 22nd of June, 1948, bringing people from the Caribbean. This era, was the high point of racial tensions. Until the Race Relations Act was passed in 1968, it was common for landlords and businesses to display signs saying, 
no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. The vicious racism of this era resulted in the enactment of the Commonwealth Immigrants Act 1962 and 1968, and the Immigration Act 1971, which, as covered in detail in the last lecture, restricted immigration from the Commonwealth for the first time. It was in this fraught context that the cases of Mohammed Matan and David Oluwale, which I opened this lecture, took place. And as most people know, this era was also a real high point of police corruption. It was common for the police to fabricate cases, frame people, plant evidence, blackmail, and bribe. Sometimes they would beat confessions out of people. While this affected working class people of all races, it fell most heavily on black people and people of color who were, who were persecuted by the police. And unfortunately, the infallible image of the British Bobby permeated the attitudes of judges. Time after time, the judiciary allowed the police to get away with it and the prosecution to present cases that would now be dismissed potentially for an abusive process. The judiciary were part of the establishment and they were not on the side of people of color or working class people. We only have to look at some of the well-known miscarriages of justice cases involving police corruption and the deliberate framing of people, particularly black people. Take for instance, the Stockholm Six and the Oval Four, all of whom had their convictions recently overturned by the Court of Appeal. Meanwhile, my own career at the bar started in the 1980s. I practiced in many fields of law, but in the latter part of my career, I've concentrated on inquests, inquiries, and actions against the police. Although not exclusively, I've represented many black people and people of color who've been assaulted, harassed, falsely accused by police officers, or whose family members have been killed by police officers. And I've seen plenty of judicial racism over the years. It has nearly always been my experience, with one or two exceptions, that for a black litigant, the jury is a better bet than a judge. Now, I'm going to move to the second part of this lecture, judicial racism today. You might think that the examples I've given in this lecture are about the distant past, but judicial racism is still very much with us and still influences the fate of many black people and minority ethnic people who come across and come before the courts as criminal defendants, civil litigants, victims of crime and bereaved families and survivors. It's with this in mind that I turn to four manifestations of judicial racism. Firstly, the criminal courts, racial disparity and racialized evidence. Second, judicial decisions which attempt to silence race in cases where black people are victims and the bereaved. Third, the Supreme Court's approach to race issues. Fourth, the legal profession and judicial bullying and mistreatment. Criminal courts. Judicial racism in the criminal courts is pronounced when looking at sentencing practices. The government's 2017 commissioned Lamy review by David Lamy MP comprehensively laid bare this truth, reporting the results of the 2016 Ministry of Justice review of Crown Court sentencing for three groups of offences. Drug uh, offences involving um, uh, violence, sexual offences and drug offences. This review found that, quote, under similar criminal circumstances, the odds of imprisonment for offenders from self-reported Black, Asian and Chinese and other backgrounds were higher than for offenders from self-reported White backgrounds. Starkly, it also found that within drug offences, the odds of receiving a prison sentence were around 240% higher for BAME offenders compared with white offenders. There are also stark disparities in sentencing of firearm offences. In fact, the Sentencing Council published eight new guidelines for firearm offences at the start of this year, and within them were 
formal directions by the Sentencing Council for judges and magistrates to be aware of disparities in the sentencing outcomes, including that, quote, a higher proportion of Black and Asian offenders receive an immediate custodial sentence than white offenders, and that for Black offenders, custodial sentence lengths have, on average, been longer than for white offenders, end quote. The Lamy Review also raised concerns about magistrate court decisions, although stressed that comprehensive data collection was a big problem. But the data that did exist showed that some, dis some racial disparities in the rate of conviction of women of color as compared with white women. The picture for BAME children is even more depressing. Where judicial discretion is leading to real problems, take for instance, remand, where someone is in prison pending a trial. Last year, Transform Justice in the Howard League for Penal Reform revealed that between July and September 2020, 87% of children on remand in London were from a BAME background, while 61% were black. A recent report by the Youth Justice Board also paints a worrying picture for BAME children, concluding that, that BAME children are more likely to receive custodial remand as opposed to bail, less likely to benefit from out-of-court disposal, more likely to receive custodial sentence, and the length of the sentence is likely to be longer, more likely to be subject to harsher requirements if a youth rehabilitation order is imposed. The YJB further noted that even when taking into account all available information, demographics, offence related, related factors, remand status and practitioner assessments, we are unable to explain all the disproportionality seen for black children. Black children are still more likely to receive harsher sentences. By contrast, the Lamy Review described juries as a success story. It cited a 2010 study of jury verdicts, which was updated in 2017 to inform the review with analysis of over 390,000 jury decisions between 2006 and 2014. This study found that jury conviction rates were very similar across different ethnic groups. BAME and white conviction rates were similar across a range of offence types with only small differences and no overall pattern. The review concluded, quote, this does not mean that every jury decision is perfect, but it does indicate that the system as a whole is working. This data confirmed what many working lawyers know from our anecdotal experience. Judges are, on average, more racially prejudiced than juries. Now, I'm not a criminal practitioner, but in my experience as a civil practitioner represent, re representing claimants and actions against the police, a black claimant is generally better off with a jury trial than a bench trial. In my experience, the jury system has much to commend it. But jurors can, of course, be also be influenced by race, often by racist tropes, stereotypes, and unfairly prejudicial evidence. Take, for instance, the use of drill music in cases involving predominantly black boys accused of gang-related crime. Simply being in a dr drill music video on YouTube can become persuasive evidence for the prosecution when trying to convince the jury of their case. I unfortunately don't have to speak in detail on the court's approach to those suspected of being in, a, being in a gang, but do advise you to check out the Garden Court Chambers six-part YouTube series on drill music, gangs and prosecutions, challenging racist stereotypes in the criminal justice system. 
This series addresses, amongst other things, gang in injunctions, criminal behaviour orders, and although the injunctions and orders must initially be sought by the prosecution, police or local authority, it is a criminal court, a county court and high court judges that authorise such a racially disproportionate and draconian measures. You see, the legal system's approach to race is pernicious and paradoxically convenient. As the Institute of Race Relations neatly captured, quote, ironically, race marks individuals out when they are the alleged perpetrator of crime, but race and racism are elided by institutions when such individuals are victims of crime and families end up disillusioned and isolated by the legal process that appears unwilling to address the impact of racism in their lives. So, let's look at this. When race is elided, silenced. Silence in race. The West has long had a race problem, but equally relenting is the West's denial of, of this problem. Racists and racist violence are treated as outliers, and using the term institutional racism is shunned as unhelpful or outright rejected. As Judge Bonello neatly captured in his dissenting opinion in the 2002 Strasbourg case of Angelova against Bulgaria, a case brought by a mother of a 17-year-old Roma boy who died in police custody in Bulgaria. It was alleged that racial discrimination was a decisive factor in the police's use of force, as well as the subsequent bungled investigation. However, the uh, European Court of Human Rights rejected the discrimination claim under Article 14 of the Convention. As Judge Bonello said, quote, I consider it particularly disturbing that a court in over 50 years of pernicious judicial scrutiny has not to date found one single instance of violation of the right to life, Article 2, or the right not to be subjected to torture or other degrading or inhuman treatment or punishment, Article 3, induced by the race, colour or place of origin of the victim, leaping through the annals of the court an uninformed observer would be justified to conclude that for over 50 years, democratic Europe has been exempted from any suspicion of racism, intolerance, and or xenophobia. The Europe projected by the court's case law is that of an exemplary haven of ethnic fraternity in which peoples of the most diverse origin coalesce without distress prejudice or recrimination. As such, misfortunes punctually visit disadvantaged minority groups, but only as a result of well-disposed coincidence. Such a charge can justifiably be leveled at England and Wales, a charge I make. From the Metropolitan Police to the government's recent Sewell report, issues of racism and racial inequality continue to be refuted. But judicial decision-making has itself played a critical role in the silences of, silencing of race, especially in cases involving violence and where the state is implicated, including, of course, the criminal justice processes. But also our senior judiciary inquests and public inquiries as well as other fact-finding and accountability processes. Consequently, those who seek to expose racism by state and legal processes face an arduous task where the potential for meaningful accountability and racial justice remains illusionary. As the European Commission Against Racism and Intolerance underlined in its 2016 report, quote, racially motivated aspects of cases are often filtered out by the police. 
CPS or judiciary through a combination of unwillingness to recognize racist motivation, the reclassifying of racist attacks as disputes or other forms of hostility and the over strict interpretation of the provisions on racist motivation. A 2004 report by the Joint Committee on Human Rights into the death and custody stressed that, quote, the unsafe use of restraint is an ongoing problem across all forms of detention. And the possibility that racial stereotyping has been a contributory factor in at least some deaths in custody resulting from restraint should be taken seriously, end quote. In 2020, the Joint Committee again stressed that a key issue that needs addressing is transparency over the role that race and, and or racism played in the death and custody. And that due to the absence of greater action, black people have continued to die disproportionately. Most recently in June, 2021, the United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights published a scathing report which called for amongst others the UK to end impunity for human rights violations against black communities by law enforcement agencies and reverse the culture of denial across towards institutional and systemic racism, particularly in the, concept, in the context of policing and deaths in custody. Let's take, for instance, the Jimmy Mabenga case. Mr Mabenga, died in October 2010 of cardiorespiratory failure caused by restraint used by three G4S guards on a plane during his deportation to Angola. The three guards stood trial in the Old Bailey in late 2014 for charges of manslaughter by negligence. It was the prosecution's case that Mr Mbenga was handcuffed from behind in a compressed position in his seat for over 30 minutes where guards ignored his cries that he could not breathe. All three guards were acquitted of manslaughter. However, most concerning about this case was the judge's decision, Mr Justice Spencer, to rule as inadmissible copious amounts of racist texts sent by two of the guards. Take, for example, one text which read, and I warn you in advance, it is not pleasant. F off and go home, you freeloading, benefit-grabbing, kid-producing, violent, non-English-speaking, C, sucker, and take those hairy-faced, sandal-wearing, bomb-making, goat-effing, smelly, raghead bastards with you. It was accepted by Mr Justice Spencer that allowing such evidence would release an unpredictable cloud of prejudice in the jury. Further, the judge told the jury not to be concerned if they later read about evidence excluded from, from the trial. Evidence which included the inquest jury's conclusion of unlawful killing, as well as the coroner's Rule 43 report, which said, quote, it seems unlikely that endemic racism would not impact on all service provision. It was not possible to explore at the inquest the true extent of racist opinion or tolerance amongst the DCOs or more widely. However, there was enough evidence to cause real concern, particularly at the possibility that such racism might, have, might find reflection in race-based antipathy towards, towards detainees and deportees, and that in turn might manifest itself in inappropriate treatment of them. This may self-evidently result in a lack of empathy and respect for their dignity and humanity, potentially putting their safety at risk, especially if force is used against them, end of quote. This takes me on to inquests, consisting of coroners and juries, which are the state's main investigative mechanism for investigating deaths in custody and ordinarily the means by which the state discharges its Article 2 procedural duty to investigate deaths in custody. And again, I touched on this in my first series of lectures last year. 
For over 30 years, inquests have offered the only, only opportunity to officially establish whether racism contributed to a person's death. However, in my experience, they have consistently failed in ensuring transparency and true accountability. In fact, I'd go as far as to suggest that the accountability mechanism where race is most elusive, unfortunately, is the inquest process, even in comparison to police, CPS, and independent office of police conduct investigations. An inquest into the death of a black person in state custody has never explicitly concluded that racism, whether that be individual prejudice or institutional racism, contributed to a person's death. The closest we've come to a such conclusion was that of Coroner Karen Monaghan of Queen's Council's Rule 43 report in Jimmy Mabenga's inquest mentioned just a moment ago. But this case must be very much treated as an outlier, unfortunately. As the charity inquest said in its submission to the United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights Inquiry on Police Brutality against Black people, Quote, the question of racism remains the elephant in the room, neither part of the investigation process nor inquest. End of quote. It is missing from the narrative conclusions and very rarely in the scope of what a coroner directs a jury to consider. Inquest has also reported numerous times, which I can wholly attest to, that instead of the inquest investigating how the deceased came to their death, black families report feeling as though their private life and that of their relatives were subjected to the most scrutiny. It's not uncommon to see clear attempts by the state to demonize the deceased, introduce racist narratives, creating a, nace, a, a, a negative reputation and the idea that of an undeserving victim like with criminal trials, drug and gang stereotypes are often part of the state's defamatory arsenal again during an inquest. As a result, official incompetence, criminality or wrongdoing are cloaked by disinformation. Unfortunately, criticism cannot only be levied at the state-interested parties and council. Coroners have also engaged in the perpetuation of stereotypes. This takes me on to the Supreme Court, where the impact of decisions reverberates far beyond individuals. Instead, sometimes changing the direction of the law, sometimes to the detriment of racialized minorities. And I want to give a few examples of this. So let's look at race in the Supreme Court. One case that my colleague David Neal talked about in the previous lecture was the 2005 case of N against the Secretary of State for the Home Department. In that case, a Ugandan woman who was a rape survivor and suffering from HIV was facing removal to Uganda. If she returned to Uganda, she would be unable to access antiretroviral medication and would face an early and painful death. She sought to remain in the UK under Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights the prohibition of inhuman and degrading treatment or punishment. The House of Lords had an opportunity to define the ambit of Article 3 for sick and disabled migrants for a generation, but chose to dismiss her appeal and to hold that Article 3 did not preclude her removal to Uganda. This case served as a precedent for the next 15 years, which led to many sick and disabled migrants been sent back to their deaths, even people with end-stage kidney failure. As my colleague said in the previous lecture, this was not a case where the House of Lords was simply applying pre-existing law. It had an opportunity to define the boundaries of the law, and a panel of all white judges chose to send a disabled black woman to her death because she wasn't British. Second case I want to mention in a completely different area of law is the 2015 case of Roberts against the Commissioner of Police for the Metropolis 
That was a case about suspicionless stop and search powers, which allowed the police to stop and search a person despite having no basis for, for suspicion that they were guilty of any crime. The law in question allowed senior police officers to authorize suspicionless stops and searches in particular, suspicionless stops and searches in a particular locality for a 24 hour period. In deciding that this law was not incompatible with the human rights of black and minority ethnic people, Baroness Hell stated, quote, the purpose of any random suspicionless power of stop and search is to reduce the risk of serious violence when knives and other offensive weapons are used, especially that associated with gangs and large crowds. It must be borne in mind that many of these gangs are largely composed of young people from black and minority ethnic groups. While there is a concern that members of these groups should not be disproportionately targeted, it is members of these groups who will benefit most from the reduction in violence, serious injury, and death that may, may result from the use of such powers. Put bluntly, it is mostly young black lives that will be saved if there is less gang violence in London and some other cities. End quote. Essentially, then, despite acknowledging that stop and search powers have a disproportionate impact on innocent black people, the court rubber stamp the stark racial inequality on the basis that it is for black people's own good, despite no evidence to support such a broad brush conclusion. Finally, a very recent case, the 2021 case of Begum against the Special Immigration Appeals Commissioner. Commission, forgive me. This was a case of the high profile Shamia Begum, which probably needs no introduction for most people. Even though Miss Begum was born and raised in the UK, the UK government used draconian powers to deprive her of her British citizenship, as was widely re reported in the press. The Supreme Court reversed the Court of Appeal decision held that Miss Begum had no right to return to the UK to pursue her appeal against the deprivation of her British citizenship, even though it was acknowledged that she could not have a fair hearing of her appeal from Syria. The court didn't stop there, though. It changed the standard of review in all appeals against deprivation of citizenship, reducing the freedom of the tribunal, judges to gainsay the Home Office decisions. And it emphasised the need for judges to defer to the government's assessment of what national security requires. In short, it handed the government everything it wanted while denying Shamia Begum the basic right to a fair hearing of her case. Of course, all of these three decisions have their defenders, but I make no apology for saying that they all illustrate the race problem in the British judiciary. In all of these cases, the highest court in the land was faced with a novel legal um, question and had the opportunity to set a precedent. In the end case, white judges sent a critically ill black rape survivor to her death. In the Roberts case, white judges decided that black people should continue to be disproportionately stopped and searched without any grounds for suspicion, ostensibly in black people's own best interests. In the Bagan case, White judges decided that the executive's concern about national security outweighed a British woman of colour's right to a fair hearing. Would all of these cases have gone the same way if we had a genuinely diverse senior judiciary? Would they have gone the same way if we had a Supreme Court justices who lived the experience of racialized stop and search? Or the Supreme Court justices who had lived the experience of our of the immigration system? Well, let's pause and take a look at the judiciary and the profession more generally. In order to understand our judiciary, we have to look at our legal profession. With the exception of lay magistrates, all of our judges are drawn from the ranks of barristers or solicitors. Most senior judges are barristers. Let's turn to judicial mistreatment and bullying. This systemic inequality in our legal profession is reflected in the makeup of our judiciary. Nationally, 
Only 1% of judges are black, while 5% are Asian, 2% are mixed race. And there is a big difference between junior and senior judiciary. While the junior, junior judiciary is slowly diversified, and I stress slowly, the senior judiciary is not and remains overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly from privileged backgrounds. In fact, there are currently no black judges in full time in the high court. I think there might be two part-time um, high court black judges. There are no black judges in the court appeal. There are no black judges in the Supreme Court, not one. There has never been, say for Dame Linda Dobbs, who was a former High Court judge. When a black person looks at the judges who may decide their fate, they don't see their own face or their own experiences reflected back at them. So too, for other marginalized minorities, in particular, gypsy, Roma, traveler community, who often face horrific levels of racism in the legal system. And this is reflected in the lived experience of the legal system for litigants, lawyers, and judges from ethnic minorities. Racist remarks in court are far from unknown. As I once wrote in Council Magazine, a colleague of mine who's black herself once appeared before an immigration judge who, upon seeing her client, remarked how nice it was to see a Somali family working. In 2000, a senior Old Bailey judge in his summing up of a case told a jury, which included two black women, that when a lot of witnesses give evidence in a case that is going to take a little time, I try to pencil in a description. I try to bring them back to you when I sum up. It's quite difficult in a case with Ethiopian witnesses because you may think they all look rather similar and it was difficult to find any distinguishing features. Judge Stevens summing up was made just months after the Lord Chancellor issued an equal treatment bench book which the then chair of the Bar's Race Relations Committee said was intended to sensitize judges to, to the effect of their pronouncements had on minorities who appear before them and who sit as jurors. Even bullying between judges is a real issue, or to quote the Times, judges face bullying on an industrial scale. For instance, in April of this year, a group of serving judges called for a parliamentary inquiry into claims of discrimination and bullying, saying that it had led to ethnic minority judges missing out on top jobs. Only a few months later in July, a retired Crown Court recorder and an immigration judge, Peter Herbert, settled a high-profile claim of racial discrimination as well as victimization and harassment against the judiciary. Judge Herbert contended that the judiciary is probably one of the last bastions of the British establishment, adding further that racism is alive and well and living in Tower Hamlets in Westminster, and yes, sometimes in the judiciary. The problem of judicial bullying was raised most recently by the Bar Council in its very illuminating report on race at the bar. The report writers must be commended for their frank words and for shining the light on the apparent inequality in our profession. So often when the legal profession is confronted with its own racism, we see denialism. I'm glad that the representative body of the bar has published a document that tells it like it is. Prior to judicial conduct though, let's just look at the report's other main findings. Firstly, black, Asian and other minority candidates are less successful in achieving judicial appointments. Rates of recommendation from the eligible pool of applicants are estimated to be 36%, 73% and 44% lower respectively when compared to white candidates. Secondly, black and Asian barristers are underrepresented in taking silk, becoming Queen's Council. There are just five black British female QCs and 17 male black British Q 
QCs in England and Wales. There are 16 male and nine female silks of mixed ethnicity. There are 17 Asian British female QCs and 60 male Asian uh, British QCs. This compares to 1,303 white men and 206, 286 white women. Next, black and Asian women at the bar are four times more likely to experience bullying and harassment at work than white men. This report categorically and definitively evidences and in quantitative and qualitative terms that barristers from ethnic minority backgrounds, especially black and Asian women, face systemic obstacles to building and progressing a sustainable and rewarding career at the bar. Candidates from ethnic minority backgrounds are less likely to obtain pupillage, that's a traineeship, than candidates from white backgrounds, even when controlling for educational attainment, university ranking, uh, bar school grades and degree classes. Even when factoring practice areas, work volume, region and seniority, women earn on average less than men, black men earn less than white men, and black and Asian women earn less than black and Asian men, and black women earn the least. The income differentials vary between practice areas, but are significant. Specific to judicial bullying and its disproportionate impact on barristers of color, the report reads as follows. The point was made that there was no obvious route for a self-employed barrister to raise bullying where it was not potentially detrimental to an individual's career. Participants felt that they had to quietly internalize others' behavior. In the courtroom, when judicial bullying and hostility were repeated, the experience was inevitably both unpleasant and exhausting for counsel. Recognition also needs to be given to the impact on perceptions of the justice system and on the perceptions of the decisions that are reached about clients of ethnic minority barristers. Clients witnessing bullying and discriminatory treatment of their counsel may well have the feeling that if counsel is not treated with basic respect, they themselves can have little confidence that the case being made on their behalf has been fairly considered. The last observation is absolutely right. Against this backdrop, how can people of colour, whether lawyers or litigants, have faith in the legal that the legal system will treat us fairly? Another helpful feature of this report, as you can see from the findings I've just read out, is that it looked at gender as well as race. It explicitly acknowledges the role of intersectionality with black women being disadvantaged at the bar, even more compared to black men. As the report states, the Bar Council recognise, recognises that we live in a society in which interpersonal, structural and institutional racism contribute to differing experiences and outcomes for individuals based on their race and ethnicity. There is an additional impact where race and ethnicity intersect with other protected characteristics such as sex, religion or with poverty or social class. It goes on to say, access to the bar career progression at the bar, access to the most prestigious and best paying work, retention and working environment are all bound up with forms of privilege and power. I just want to again commend the authors of this report for shining a light on the issues we as racialized lawyers faced. So what should we do about judicial racism? Now we turn to the third and final section of this lecture. What should we do about judicial racism? I want to start with the easy, obvious answers. Let's look at seven really obvious steps. Number one, judges must accept their own prejudices and be committed to ensuring that they do not influence their decision-making. Although an obvious answer, being able to see one's own prejudices is difficult for the best of us, as Lord Nichols recognised in Narajan against the London Regional Transport in 1999, all human beings have preconceptions, beliefs, attitudes and prejudices 
on many subjects, we do not always recognise our own prejudices. Many people are unwilling or unable to admit, even to themselves, that actions of theirs may be racially motivated. End of quote. The judiciary as a whole and individual judges must accept this and engage in meaningful introspection. The equal treatment bench book goes on, goes some way to prompting judges to do this, but it's not enough. Second, to appoint more black judges and judges of colour and to reform legal training, recruitment and career progression with a view to ensuring that current barriers impeding the judicial appointment of black people are broken. The responsibility for this falls on a number of bodies, the Judicial Appointments Commission, the Bar Standards Board, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, law firms and barristers chambers. Three, to mandate training on race issues for judges at all levels of the legal system. This would require action by the Ministry of Justice. Four, to take swift and decisive disciplinary action against judges who make racist comments in court who, or who treat litigants and lawyers of colour with disrespect, and to foster a climate in which junior lawyers no longer feel afraid to speak out against poor treatment. The responsibility for this falls mainly on the Judicial Conduct Investigation Office and on judges with leadership roles. It also falls on the regulatory bodies and on law firms and barristers' chambers to ensure that lawyers who make complaints are protected and don't suffer adverse professional consequences. Fifth, to conduct comprehensive race audits of the key institutions within the legal system to expose and address the causes of racial inequality. This includes audits of the legal regulatory bodies, the major law firms and barristers' chambers, the Judicial Appointments Commission, and the judiciary itself. There were talks that the Equality and Human Rights Commission should conduct an inquiry into the judiciary, but this hasn't come to fruition so far. Six, to mentor talented young people of colour at school and university level, to help them access careers in law. This is a responsibility that we all have, and I'm glad to say that my own chambers is already doing this. Seven, reverse mentoring and outreach work. All judges should be required to do outreach work and liaise with grassroots organisations. They must be required to communicate outside of a court setting with people and communities for whom their decisions impact. This is not to say that a judge should become a youth worker, but they must be able to appreciate the lives and experience of those who that come before the courts. The thing that most judges who sentence children have never visited a youth offending institute or a pupil referral unit is, a, is seriously concerning. All of those steps are comparatively uncontroversial. I imagine most people in this room would agree that we need to take these steps. Some law firms and barristers chambers are already taken steps like this as far as they can. And the Bar Council report is a great first step forward, recognising and addressing the fundamental problems at the Bar. But we mustn't stop there. Obvious answers, because those answers aren't enough. Even if we had a judiciary that fully reflected the racial and ethnic diversity of Britain from the bottom to the top, then even if our judges were completely free of prejudice, we would still have a problem. Our judges administer laws and operate within a legal system which had racism baked into its very fabric. For instance, we, as we covered in the last lecture, our system of immigration law has been built on the foundations of racism ever since its inception in the 1960s. The architecture of our modern immigration law was established to keep black and Asian people from the Commonwealth out. And our system of immigration law continues to, be, to have a disproportionate impact on black people and people of color today. And more broadly, our legal system was designed by and for the rich to protect property and privileges of the rich against encroachment by the poor. Our law punishes poor people for shoplifting or begging. It doesn't punish politicians whose policies help keep them poor. Our law punishes homeless people for squatting in empty buildings. It doesn't punish the landlords who leave 
buildings empty. It punishes environmental protesters for disrupting fracking operations or blocking roads. It doesn't punish the corporations that are destroying our environment. And in our system of racialized capitalism, the rich are disproportionately white and the poor are disproportionately people of color. Against this backdrop, appointing more black judges won't be enough. We won't have a truly legal system until we have fundamental social and political change until we change the balance of power in our society.